Good morning, good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are, and whether you're listening in the car, the office, or wherever you are, thank you so much for tuning in to yet another episode of the Reenactors Ramble. Now, the episodes and guests are coming thick and fast, and today is no exception to the list. I'm joined today by Matt Yates from the Chalk Living History Group, who specialise in impressions and education all about the Glider Pilot Regiment. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Good, no problem at all, no problem at all. We're always looking for, for people that can provide a little bit of education and guidance about things that were perhaps not as clued up on uh, ourselves. And uh, the GPR is, is something that we've, I guess, skirted around a little bit here or there. We've talked a lot about Gliderborne impressions, British parachutists. Yeah. We sort of teased and, uh, and, and teetered around the edge of the, the Glider Pilot Regiment. And today we're going to get right into the thick of it and uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about it from somebody who I would, uh, I guess, is, uh, would, would you perhaps proclaim yourself as, a, as an expert in the Glider Ooh, Pilot Regiment? I, I, try, I always try and steer clear of that mantle. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, it's not something... I don't know how you can be, really. Mm-hmm. I think other people might call you it, but I wouldn't say enthusiast. Wouldn't. Uh, yeah, very uh, obsessive enthusiast. Yes, brilliant. <laughs> I think, yeah. Brilliant. So, you know, and yourself, um, how long have you been reenacting then for, Matt? So I came into it quite late in life. I've been mm-hmm. collecting ever since I was a, a kid. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm approaching 55, mm-hmm. uh, and my older brother, when I was a child, had a lot of, uh, lot of bits of kit webbing mm-hmm. and helmets and stuff like that so i i of course ended up with all that when he left home mm-hmm. uh, i had a lot of uncles that had served in the second world war and i used to right, listen to right. their stories and cost bitten by the book so uh, although i collected for a long time in the mid 80s i shelved i shelved the second world war and started collecting right. vietnam based okay. stuff uh, due to all the films that were around at the time uh, and then went into a marriage, came out of the marriage, and <laughs> all the Vietnam <laughs> stuff had gone. And then mm-hmm. I started again with the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And I started reenacting um, early 2000s, something like 2005, 2006, something like that. I can't quite remember. Mm-hmm. But I started because I also sculpted uh, figures, one six scale right, figures. Right, yeah. And I wanted to do some um, British airborne figures. And I wanted to get all the stuff as accurate as I could. So mm. I bought uh, a reproduction smock. I bought some webbing. But, and before I knew it, I had enough for an impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, I'd been onto a, an old website, which I think is defunct now, called uh, worldwar2reenacting.co.uk. Oh, yes. Remember that? Nostalgia right there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was great, great website, great resource. Uh, got chatting to some people who happened to be members of a group called Vera, the Victory in mm-hmm. Europe Reenactment yeah, yep. Association, which is still going strong. Uh, and I joined them. They asked me to join and I joined them and we did lots of events together over a couple of years. Uh, and that was the first battalion border regiment who were, mm-hmm. were air landing. And I noticed two things when we ever did uh, an event. First, we got uh, mistaken as paratroops, parachutists. Mm-hmm. Secondly, nobody had ever heard of gliders. So we'd say, no, 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 we're not paras, we're glider born. Mm-hmm. And then pe- the public would say, gliders what yeah we don't know so then i thought "Mm, this is interesting Mm -hmm. this red this whole regiment is being uh, underrepresented Mm -hmm. in in the reenactment world i can only think that that would be because it's it's not easy but it's easier to represent uh, a unit that might have a jeep or a vehicle or Mm -hmm. larger bits of kit 
it's very, very difficult to represent a unit that has a horse or glider. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I know there's a, there's a there's a group at the moment that have built uh, a horse or glider, which is fantastic. But yeah, way yeah. back in the day, nobody had any props like that at all. So then you're sort of limited to what you can actually do. So for one reason or another, myself and, and, and a few friends uh, had to part ways with with Vera, mainly because of a geographical sort of issue, because mm-hmm. they're based up in the northeast and we're sort yeah. of Leeds and into the Midlands. So what are we going to do with ourselves? So we said, let's do the glider pilot regiment, but let's do it to the absolute nth degree. Mm-hmm. Let's research it. Let's do it right if we're going to do it. So that's what we started to do. Uh, and it really, really picked picked up speed very quickly. Uh, we got a lot of events at museums up and down the country, mainly down the country, as you know, mm-hmm. you're always, yeah, course, yeah, you're yeah. always <laughs> traveling down south for, for everything. You do it, spend a lot of time on the motorway when, you, when you're based mm-hmm. up in the north. Um, and <clears throat> very quickly into setting up chalk, I was approached by the glider pilot regiment association, uh, the regimental association, which was mm-hmm. set up uh, at the end of the second world war for, for existing veterans. And they asked me to come down to Bournemouth for an AGM, do a quick display, which I did. That went down very well with the, with mm-hmm. the veterans and, and their family members. Uh, and then shortly after that, or the following year, I did another one. And then they took me to one side and, and made me an honorary member, which was wow. which was fantastic, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's that's superb. Um, so that's when I got into reenacting is, is early mm-hmm. sort of 2000s. And then I've yeah. done, uh, as, as yourself have, and, and lots of the listeners will have done, I've done all manner of things that I would never have thought I would have mm-hmm. done. So Possible. it's been a, yeah. an excellent, excellent choice. Absolutely, and quite a contrast to, I guess, uh, I would I would say the the, the vast majority of, of the hobby. I think who probably enter the hobby in their perhaps late teens to yeah. uh, to mid twenties. I think for for a large proportion. Um, so I, I guess from your side of things, quite quite a contrast. I think because if I think back to my early days as a a sixteen year old um, just entering the hobby, perhaps not having the disposable income, perhaps not having the mature head in my shoulders to accept criticism, to understand, um, to have spoken to veterans potentially as much, to have uh, watched as many of the old war movies, yeah. um, quite as much. You know, a lot of those things realistically, as such, um, hadn't had the just the, the time really uh, or the experience behind me to collect equipment before reenacting so i guess a couple of things did you know in later in life presumably you had a bit more disposable income and i guess coming from that collector's background you must have already had the sort of the foundations ready just to sort of move straight in and segue and, and move take that sideways step into reenacting uh, i did uh, I, I would say i think i think all of us regardless of age once mm-hmm. we get bitten by this uh, the, the bug, bug of this yep. sort of hobby yep. Uh, you end up tripping over yourself, and just mm. like everybody else, I've I've bought things that I shouldn't have bought. I've spent yeah. money that I shouldn't have spent. So, although yes, I, I was already established as a collector, mm. um, the, when I was younger, that took place through the exchange in Mart. That's mm-hmm. where you 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 went to yeah. uh, markets. Uh, Leeds uh-huh. Market was a great place. You could get original yeah. Second World War kit on Leeds Market, um, right, right? And you could get it out of Exchange and Mart from companies like Silverman's and things like that. Mm-hmm. So later on in life, uh, when it was in the two thousands, you've got the internet. And just like everybody else, you end up on eBay at, at mm-hmm. 11 o'clock at night and think, I'll have that, I'll have that, I'll have that. So I've, yeah. it's been a very steep learning curve for mm-hmm. me just as much as it would be for anybody else. Yeah, and I true, think true. that over the past uh, past few years, I've managed to to hone 
my area of interest to such a point that I am not now wasting money on things that I don't need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good um, point. The collection that I have now is pretty much solely glider pilot regiment. Mm-hmm. There are other little bits and bobs and SAS stuff, some parachute regiment stuff, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it's all glider pilot regiment, and that's right. <clears throat> photographs, um, ephemera, um, mm-hmm. maps, y- you name it, really. Yeah. It, uniform items, kit items, bits mm-hmm. of gliders, or all sorts of things like that. So, so it's it's been a it, it's been a steep learning curve, but it's been yeah. a, an extremely enjoyable, and mm-hmm. I'm still learning. You know, you, as we said at the beginning, I mm-hmm. don't think I, I always feel that the, the 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 word expert means that you're there. Yeah, you true, know true. everything. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know everything. You know, mm. I, I know a lot. I've forgotten a lot. <laughs> yeah, as you do. Yeah, yeah, but but I, I think that the 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 website that we mentioned earlier, the World War Two Reenactment Forum, was a great place to start because mm-hmm. there were some extremely knowledgeable people on there that have Completely. become good friends over the years and i still go to them now mm-hmm. i still go to these people now and say yeah. what do you think to this yeah. what do you think to that and i Completely. think that's an important thing for young people starting out is don't be afraid mm-hmm. to ask for advice Completely. And I think the, the, the hobby these days lacks that forum and, and a friend and i were already just discussing this the other day that 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 area where you could seek advice without criticism you know because and I guess at those times as well, it wasn't really an image-based thing as Facebook and Instagram are these days. It's yeah. very image and content focused, whereas back then it was a very different structure. So you could quite easily ask questions, you know, without somebody perhaps looking through your profile pictures and looking at your Facebook uploads and perhaps judging you before they've even answered your question, you know. So it's, yeah. it's quite a difficult place for, for people in the uh, in the hobby these days. But just going back to one of your points there, Matt, as well, because it's throwing up a lot of interesting points, which... Um, We've often we've well, we've recently discussed or are planning to discuss in the future, and uh, quite recently we we did an episode around uh, money and finances in the hobby, um, and about the contrasting attitudes. And you mentioned something there, um, something which I certainly relate to and, and connect with is um, is that you've made purchases that perhaps yeah. weren't the right, uh, should we say, sensible, practical, um, bigger picture purchase to make at the time. Um, do you regret any of those purchases, or you know, down further down the line, are you glad that you took that risk? I, I I think I'm glad I took the risk. I think I think, unfortunately, there's only one way to learn, and sometimes that's the difficult way. And mm-hmm. I think that, uh, as I said earlier, any younger people that are getting into the hobby, I'm I'm more than happy to help and answer any questions. Mm-hmm. They can come to me via the Chalk Living yep. History Facebook page and ask me questions, and I'm more than happy to help to save them the 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 issues that, that, that mm-hmm. I, I faced with mm-hmm. uh, making purchases that weren't exactly the right thing. I haven't really regretted any of them for that reason, because I think mm-hmm. learning is a, is a tough thing, but True. I do regret selling stuff. That's a, a slightly yeah. different tangent, mm-hmm. but it's, it's just as, it's just as important. I think I'm not a huge fan of hoarding. I never really have yep. been. You can only have, surely you can only have so many pieces mm-hmm. of insignia, so many helmets, so many dice and smocks that, why do you need so many? Um, uh, but that's a personal preference. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think I've made some. I, I, I've made some sales in the past that I just. I sometimes I hang my head in yeah. shame and think, why did I let that go? That's a, but a ridiculous I guess it's thing. always going to be the case, isn't it? You know, I think if you sell something now, you know, even ten times the value that you might have done twenty years ago. In twenty years' time, it's probably going to be a similar story, perhaps not to the same growth extent, but very similar. 
completely. And and speaking of chalk, again, you mentioned something a little bit earlier, which I think is how the, the hobby is contrasting. So I think maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, I think uh, the hobby and groups were very much about numbers games. They're about how many yeah. guys or, or girls or just, you know, individuals can you get together in a group because the larger the group, almost the better the group to an extent back in the day. And I think it was it was rather quantity focused over quality. And I think over, over recent years, and it sounds like with Chalk, you've perhaps been a little bit ahead of the curve there that you've been focused on that quality and trying to find um, a group of, of like-minded people, perhaps not of the same volumes, but of a, of a smaller, more select group. Yeah. Did you find in... in you know this pursuit of uh, of excellence and trying to do things with that little bit more of a detail uh, focus within there. Did you find that that limited your numbers or ability to recruit people, or or was it rather the opposite? Uh, we we in the early days when we were doing a lot of reenacting events, which we haven't done for a while now, um, mm-hmm. we were getting a lot of people approaching us and asking to join. And what we decided very early on is that there was a hardcore of of five of us at, at mm-hmm. the time. And we were comfortable doing that. And as I was running it, it was really easy for me to run. So I know that when we were with Vera, one of the problems was they had about 25 plus members. Mm -hmm. And Gary that was running it used to say to me, it's really difficult to book an event because I can't book it with 25 plus members Mm -hmm. because only nine might show up or 15 might promise to attend and only six show up. Mm-hmm. So I I, I kind of t- took a page from his book there and I kind of thought, well, if there's just five of us, I know that the very least four of us are going to turn up. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I knew that I could I could field the events that I wanted to field with that, those amount of bodies rather mm-hmm. than thinking, this is going to be a huge show, 20-odd yeah. guys getting there on the day and thinking, mm-hmm. finding out that, you know, only five of us are going to show mm-hmm. up. So that was yeah. really good. And 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 again, very early on, I learned that because we approached it as accurately as we could and as respectfully as we could, that a lot of other groups showed an interest in what we were doing and were mm-hmm. more than happy to work with us. So um, particularly at the War and Peace show and the Victory show, we were able to join up with other British Airborne groups and so we weren't just three or four guys. We were suddenly mm-hmm. 30 or 40. Yeah. All of the same ilk, all mm-hmm. putting on the same standard of, of display. So mm-hmm. that worked out really, really well in our favor. And I think mm-hmm. that that happens quite a lot now. There are a lot of smaller groups made mm-hmm. up of five or six people that join together. If you look at Monty's Men, for instance, Monty's mm-hmm. Men isn't yeah, yeah. really Completely. a functioning group. It comes no. together once or twice in a couple of years mm-hmm. and it pulls people from from all sorts of different pots and creates this incredible uh event mm-hmm. uh so that's 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 kind of where we were with with how, how we managed our our sort of numbers and why mm-hmm. we managed it that way yeah I certainly think the the sort of micro group, as it were, to a degree, I think, and it seems to me that people are now involved in several groups in a smaller scale. And I think what that does, is it, it, like we mentioned, it drives that quality because when there's only four or five of you, it's almost like, the, I'm going to say the cream rises to the top, but it's, it is that focus. It's You haven't got the people who are doing it because it's convenient for them because their yeah. friends are doing it. You're doing it because it, it means the most to you. Or you, you, you or that's the way it certainly should be. And I think it is the way that it, it's happening. And I can certainly speak for the, for the two or three groups that I'm involved in that are of a smaller scale and perhaps were 10, 15 years ago. The quality is just much higher. The expectations are higher and long may it continue for me. Yeah. 
Indeed. I think one thing one thing that's always been a bit of a bone of contention is the reenactor title versus the living historian title. Yeah. And you'll know you get that quite a lot on events. People yep. will say, oh, I'm not a reenactor. I'm a living historian. Mm-hmm. And you'd likewise get reenactors saying, Oh, I don't yep. do any of that living history. I'm not eating mm-hmm. I'm not eating rations. I'm going to eat burgers from the burger van because that's yeah. what I'm happy doing. And I think here's a question then, Matt. What you know, just for everybody out there, what what would you say is that difference? You know, where would you draw that definitive line? I, I think it's a I think it's a, a, a fine line. That's what mm-hmm. I've discovered over the years. And basically, it's about enjoyment. It's mm-hmm. about what you enjoy doing and how you put yourself across. Mm-hmm. So I think that for me. It's a huge hobby, and I think it's larger than just reenactors and living mm-hmm. historians. Yep. I think it's a huge umbrella. You've got military vehicle collectors who will have the most accurate military vehicle, mm-hmm. but they'll they'll wear a, a DPM jacket and a, and a pair mm-hmm. of jeans, and mm-hmm. that's what they're comfortable doing. They're they're, yep. they're wanting yep. to show you their vehicle. They don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to be wearing woolen underwear and yep. eating <laughs> you know eating original eighty yeah. year old Russian well, yeah. <laughs> But Meston, you know that's that's just the way. That's just the way goes Mm -hmm. i think um this segues quite nicely into how chalk has been existing over the past two or three years which Mm -hmm. is we stepped away a little bit from actually uh, doing any living history or reenactment events Mm -hmm. and we started uh just displaying all the equipment on a a, a (laughs) absolute mountain of fold-up tables that are in the garage Mm -hmm. but uh we, we set up all the tables and we set up all the kit and the bits of gliders and the models of mm-hmm. gliders and the maps and the photographs and everything all in a in a huge display. Mm-hmm. And then we 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 man that display. Sometimes we do it in uniform. More often than not, recently we've done it in in branded polo shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that we get a better um, reception from from members right. of the public when, okay. when we're like that. I think sometimes when you're dressed in uniform, it can turn people off a little bit, yep, or maybe people get a bit standoffish. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, a lot of people assume you're a serving soldier. It's just one of those things that one of those mm-hmm. things that the public assume. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, they they, yep, they see yep. you and they, they they think you're too busy to talk to them. Mm-hmm. We found that when we're wearing the branded polo shirts, they're far more happy to come over and, and ask us questions. So we get an awful lot more out of it because the reason mm-hmm. why that why why we're there at that event is to partake. Uh, or share and share the knowledge that we've we've amassed over the years. Mm-hmm. If people don't want to come and talk to us, then we're not really doing our job. Um, mm-hmm. So, I think that I think it's imp- it's important to 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 maintain a communication with the public from our mm-hmm. point of Agreed. view. And I've always enjoyed that. I haven't always enjoyed doing private battles. Put it that way. When you do mm-hmm. private battles, yep. it's not. It's, I did. I, I did a number of them. So, like, what is the purpose sometimes of it? Yeah, it was good fun to to hang out with friends and mm-hmm. and, and, and fire blanks and things like that. And, and I enjoyed that. And you learn a lot. Mm-hmm. You learn a lot about the kit. You learn a lot about yeah. how heavy a brand gun is after yep. you've carried it for four or five hours. You know. <laughs> but um, I think doing the living history shows where you're. You might be dug in and the public are coming in amongst you and they're seeing you eating your rations mm-hmm. and they're asking you questions. I used to really, really enjoy doing yeah. that. Um, but likewise, I do enjoy um, displaying behind a tabletop as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just yeah. a nice way to educate about this particular Completely. regiment. It's, it's really interesting because, you know, certain members of, of, of my group are 
into the mid fifties now, some in their early sixties. And we yeah. often have conversations about what, what are the, the next realistic steps? Because realistically there are very, very few roles which they can pull off without having all sorts of gold ribbon and braids all over themselves. And, yeah. you know, and they're perhaps not wanting to do that because of, um, you know, I guess when you get to that level, you are no longer impersonate the common man. And it's a little bit more of a, uh, a fancy dress to, to a degree or impersonating an individual person. But, and speaking of, I guess, impersonating an individual people, there's a certain degree, I think, of wearing a uniform in reenacting that is self-censored. And I mean this in the most positive way possible, because I think all of us at some point have been sat a, aboard a tank or a jeep or walking into a battle at the Victory Shore, the War and Peace Shore, you know, uh, D-Day, Connie, or wherever that might be, and had the public taking pictures of you and you felt good. You know, you yeah. felt that camera on you and you felt people looking at you and asking you questions and you felt good about that. There's a certain degree of uh, self-validation, I think, that comes from that. But when you stand behind a table and wear a polo shirt and you're displaying the kit, you there is a sense of freedom, I think, from that where the uniform is no longer on you and it becomes about that person and it, it no longer becomes about you anymore and you, you almost separate yourself from it to a degree and i don't know i guess what i'm trying to say is that sometimes it can there be more of an enjoyable sense of freedom from taking yourself out of that reenacting education because we all want to we all want to educate the public we want to help them yeah. understand and see it but is it sometimes a better way to not wear it and to actually get them over and to not make it about us you know and i often struggle with that battle is it is it better to be in uniform and educate them or is it better to be out of the uniform and just put it on a mannequin you know yeah, I think I think it's a I think it's a good question. I think it's a relevant question as well, particularly mm-hmm. uh, as you said earlier with with people's ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know for myself, um, I think you, you're you're fortunate with the Second World War in so much that twenty five year olds, when you look at photographs, you'd mistake them for forty <laughs> yeah, odd year olds. Absolutely, their, their teeth were horrendous and their hair mm-hmm. slicked back and 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 all the rest of it. They do look a lot older than they actually were. So. You, you, you've got a certain amount of give uh, reenacting into your forties or fifties, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think this has been a question that's been around for years as well. It's been argued uh, over and over: uh, mm-hmm. should, should you still be doing it when you're a certain size, or should mm-hmm. you still be doing it when you're a certain age? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think that if if you're comfortable, if you're happy in that area, mm-hmm. then why not continue to do it? Mm-hmm. However. I think one thing that that was that was hitting home with me was when I was talking to the public was I was very keen on getting across to them who these men were mm-hmm. that that uh, known as total soldiers who would who were trained to fly and fight a, a completely unique uh, mm-hmm. regiment and for me to stand there in my mid 40s early 50s and for them to think that's what these men were like i remember one day saying to this that there was a a a, a husband and wife and a and a a, a, their son and i said how if you don't mind me asking how old are you and he said i'm I'm 21 and i said to his mother he'd be flying one of these gliders Mm -hmm. and she was like seriously and i said Mm -hmm. or a spitfire or a sherman tank or running up the beach completely 21 years old and he'd be behind the controls of this 65 foot long wooden glider mm-hmm. not a not a 45 year old man and i think that a lot of the 1970s war movies in particular have fed us that i you agree know, that yeah. roger moore david niven sean connery were the type <laughs> yeah. of people who, who mm-hmm. 
you know, we know that David Niven actually did fight in the Second World yes, War. Yeah. We know that Roger Moore and Sean Connery both served in the forces. But men in their 40s and 50s weren't necessarily serving as infantrymen. You do get mm-hmm. the odd uh the, the odd the odd one but mm-hmm. essentially they were they were much younger men and so that used to mm-hmm. strike home with me when at the end of the weekend or the end of the week when i'd been displaying i used to think mm-hmm. are these people going home and, and in their head they're thinking these were mature men you know completely yeah yeah that's that's a really interesting point and it's something we've skirted around here or there and we, we you know we, we've talked about having episodes which were directly challenging the concept of, of age and, and body shape or size or yeah. type sh- should we should we say that but I, you know i think you've hit home and if i was to take all the filters away for just a second and you know for me you completely you've hit the nail on the head and that really are you comfortable with with perhaps saying to the public that i'm representing you know a young fit elite man you get these people who are perhaps representing the second rangers or you know who might be the commandos or whatever it might be you know yeah. british power is more commonly 101st airborne all this sort of stuff and you were 60 years of age and, you know, bearing 20 stone um, and and having to find plus size, you know, battle dress or whatever it might be. And you can't quite find a belt that fits you. It's just like at that point, at which point do you go from being proud of these men and trying to educate to, to actually disrespecting them? You know what I mean? In a, in a, a nice, the nicest way possible. But yeah. <clears throat> is it is it actually just more disrespectful to be, you know, a, 56 inch chest and 20 odd stone uh being 60 years old wearing the uniform of, of somebody like that does, does that become more about you and disrespectful than it does about trying to educate them and honor them yeah i think that's a i think that's such a uh <clears throat> it's such a tricky question to answer um that i, I, almost, I would say yes just put it out there i, I almost hesitate to, <laughs> to i almost hesitate to, to to continue with it i've got to be honest because mm. i know i've got so many friends of, of my yep. age <clears throat> and my waistline that 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 do this hobby and fully enjoy it and their knowledge base is just incredible mm-hmm. the things that they know so far be it from me to to, yeah. to point the finger at anybody and so say hard. you're too old you're too short you're too tall you're too overweight yeah. or whatever it is it's that's that's not for me to to point the finger at anybody but <clears throat> all i can all i can do is speak from my own experiences yeah. and how i feel um uh-huh. and and they've been several occasions in the past where <laughs> at the end of a long Saturday at the side of an airfield, just being able to stand up without making a load of noises <laughs> is, <laughs> is a real challenge. Yeah. And I think that, yeah. I, I think that a, 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 a genuine original uh, a pilot of the glider pilot regiment wouldn't have been in that position. They were yeah, at the peak of their completely. fitness as were all, all our uh, frontline troops. Um, it, it's difficult. So, yeah. so, so there are moments where you kind of think I'm absolutely bushed and all I've done is talk all day. I haven't had to do half of the things yeah. that these people had to do. You know, you, so. you know you're right. And as, as much as I am quick to, to point the finger, I, I do it with the, uh, the blissful ignorance of a, of a 33 year old man who, who, who luckily is, is still a 38 inch chest and, you know, managing to hold on to those uniforms right now um can i will i still be in that same position in 10 15 years time i highly doubt that and i might change my opinion um at that time as well but you know i I can speak with that blissful ignorance i think right now and uh naivety of uh potential youth to a degree you know maybe i'm maybe i'm just as in the wrong because as a 33 year old man uh, i would have been an old man um in the infantry the air force whatever that might be so maybe i'm no better to that sense as well you know if we want to look at it that way but but at the end of the day it is a 
essentially it's a hobby. Yes, yes. You know, it, it's it's not a, a life calling necessarily. <laughs> so, Completely, so, yeah. Uh, because it's a hobby, if you if you were a fisherman and you'd invested thousands of pounds in your fishing equipment, but you never caught a fish, I'm sure all your friends at work would be saying, "Look, you, you're crap as a fisherman. Yeah. Why don't you jack yeah, yeah. it in?" But if you enjoy mm-hmm. sitting on the riverbank with your with your hook True. dangling in the water, then who's to say that you should stop? That's it. Yeah. Ult- ultimately, like you Odd said, analogy, it is a hobby. But- and- yeah, no, not completely, but yeah, I think sometimes, and, and I, I personally have to sometimes take myself out of the uh, the, the bubble sometimes and look at it with a, a broader picture, you know, um, in that sense. So, yeah. but but moving on away from, you know, we've segued off into uh, some some very interesting topics and perhaps yeah. full episodes in themselves. But moving back onto the the glider pilot regiment, um, we've, we talked about where the passion came from, and, and obviously this this little bit of a niche and the the need to to educate and 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 perhaps represent um, the glider pilot regiment. So playing devil. devil devil's advocate out there for some of those people that are perhaps involved in the hobby um they're perhaps maybe uh maybe slightly aware of the glider pilot regiment some people yeah. may not have heard of them at all some people may have heard of them and just thought mm, boring did they do anything you know not interested what would you say to those people you know if you had like a, a very quick elevator pitch to sort of try and sell the glider pilot regiment and say okay. to them why it isn't boring why it is exciting how would you sort of you know sell that to somebody right uh, i'll i'll take the very quick with a pinch of salt. Um, <laughs> so the, the 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 glider pilot regiment itself was right at the very forefront of of airborne forces development. Mm-hmm. We have to remember that that at the start of the Second World War, airborne forces weren't really a, 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 a concept mm-hmm. for the for the Allies anyway. Absolutely, they were on yeah. the cards. The, the British were looking at it. The Americans were looking at it. The Russians were certainly looking at it. And of course, <laughs> in the Germans. Strange the, ways, yeah. The, yeah. the Germans were were, were were really sort of getting in uh-huh. there with it. And as we all know, the, the story now with with British airborne forces development, Churchill had asked for a force of five thousand men, mm-hmm. uh, parachutists and, and glider borne. Um, after seeing what had happened in uh, in Europe with the the way the Germans were were. Were, mm-hmm. were, were taking over the occupying Europe using airborne forces. So, <clears throat> just as a a, 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 a slight uh, area of <laughs> a point of interest is that the glider pilot regiment were made official before the parachute regiment. So, February nineteen forty two, the glider pilot regiment were made an official regiment. August nineteen forty two followed the parachute regiment. So, the the ethos of the glider pilot regiment was that they were the the best of the best and i say that because to be able to fly an aircraft you have to be quite laid back you have to know what you're doing you have to be extremely mm-hmm. intelligent but you have to be quite a laid back individual you can't be mm-hmm. you can't be ramrod straight yeah but to be a good soldier you need to be ramrod straight uh, and you need to be able to function as a soldier, not as an airman. So mm-hmm. these men have to be able to do both things. And early on, when they were formed, a lot of them were ditched because they either were too good at soldiering and not good enough at flying, or they were too good at flying and not good enough at soldiering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that the men that were coming out in late 42, 43 were the actual uh, cream of the crop. Um, and then... <clears throat> Right up until Arnhem, really, when they lost almost half their number, uh, and then there were uh, that that the the regiment was strengthened by um, men from the RAF who were then used as glider pilots for Operation Varsity in March 1945. Mm-hmm. 
those men were, of course, extremely good pilots and had to learn very quickly how to soldier. They went on mm -hmm. a, literally on a crash course on how to use small arms and how to soldier, and they performed extremely well in Operation mm -hmm. Varsity. So I think uh, we, we, we mentioned off-air that the, the regiment are probably most famous for D-Day and, and Operation Market Garden. But the very, very first operation was in 1942, and that was Operation Freshman. And that was two gliders flying from the very northeast tip of Scotland over to Norway with uh, Royal Engineers on board to yeah. try and take out the heavy water plant <laughs> over there in Norway. That unfortunately failed quite miserably uh, with uh, terrible consequences. The following main operation was um, the invasion of Sicily in July 1943, Operation Husky, uh, which was broken into two airborne elements, Fustian and, and Ladbrook. Um, and they flew gliders from Cornwall, flew horse gliders from Cornwall all the way to Africa and then mm -hmm. over to uh, Tunisia for the mm -hmm. jump-off point. Uh, they were also given American uh, CG4A Waco gliders, which the mm -hmm. British renamed Hadrians, and they had to go on a, on a on a crash course to learn how to fly those. So when they flew uh, for the Sicily operation, there was only uh, a number of horses, and the rest were made up from the American CG4As, which our pilots didn't have much uh, experience on. Some of them were, were backed up by uh, spare American pilots for that reason. That operation was successful but costly uh, and an awful lot was learned um, on that on that operation uh, so by the time the following year when when the invasion of France rolled around when operation overall came along the regiment was um, far more experienced than it had been mm -hmm. it started off as a um, with battalions and companies and platoons. And later on, it developed into two wings, number one wing, number two wing, and that had squadrons. Um, and and it, so it was structured a little bit more like an RAF unit than an army unit, but it was still mm -hmm. essentially army. So yeah. they took part in the invasion of Sicily, the invasion of France, Operation Market Garden at Arnhem. And then in March of 1945, they also took part in the largest single airborne lift uh, in history, which was the Operation Varsity, the invasion of Germany. But there were also smaller, there was an invasion of southern France, mm -hmm. uh, there was operations in Yugoslavia, there was taking French SAS into uh, southern France just after D-Day. There, there was all manner of, of different little things that these mm -hmm. men were doing. Um, and, and I briefly mentioned earlier on, they were known as total soldiers because who else can fly an aircraft and fight once they're on the ground? They were taught to use all British weaponry. That includes <laughs> the loads they were carrying. So um, six-pounder anti-tank guns, 17-pounder anti-tank guns, uh, three-inch mortars, uh, Bren guns, Piat's, Mm -hmm. Number four rifles, Sten guns, <laughs> you name it. Jack plus, of all, yeah. Plus they were also taught how to use captured German weapons, mm -hmm. uh, and they all attended battle school in Bournemouth where they fought in the streets, uh, which mm -hmm. were all uh, taken over by the military for those purposes. Mm -hmm. So they were taught street fighting, which obviously paid off when they were of in, uh, in Arnhem um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Ustavik. So a huge variety. You know, there isn't just 
market garden. There isn't just the oxen books. You know, there isn't just those two elements there. There is so much that you can do within the glider pilot regiment, which I would imagine we would have opened some people's eyes, I think, um, to that within the hobby. And for, for some of those people who are perhaps relatively uh, new to understanding the, the glider pilot regiment. So, you know, we've got that, they've got that predominant role, that primary role initially, which is obviously to get those troops in that glider, get that stick down to the ground, yeah. uh, get them landed safely and get the goods, uh, be that vehicles, weapons, artillery, soldiers outside and onto the ground. So, you know, you mentioned that they, these guys were obviously fighting troops. So what happened when these guys landed on the ground? Did they, would they stay with the men that they landed with? Would they form up together? How would that work? The a bit of both so they'd uh, they'd stay with the troops that they'd brought in but more and more often than not those troops would leave leave the pilots so mm-hmm. if they had a jeep and, and a gun or a jeep and a trailer they'd hopefully get that out of the glider yeah hop in and scoot off and do their jobs leaving the, mm-hmm. the pilots behind to form up with more pilots at mm-hmm. arnhem in particular their role in fact the role of the regiment was defensive Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a, 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 an, an offensive role. It was a defensive yes. role. Um, on D-Day, they were expected to get back to the beaches as quickly as possible. Uh, so they'd fly in the troops. They'd function with those troops as long as was necessary. But at the mm-hmm. earliest convenience, they had to get back down to the beaches to be shipped back to the UK in case they were wanted for any further lifts. Again, yeah. Obviously, Arnhem, that doesn't really pan out so well because they're 65 miles behind enemy lines. But they both wings, number one and number two wing, had defensive roles. So they were to defend uh, headquarters. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... Um, for that i've lost my track a little bit so so they'd when they were on the ground as soon as the glider was on the ground they'd uh supervise the unloading of the glider mm-hmm. um and as i say they would either then stay with the men that they brought in but mm-hmm. more often than not they'd meet up with other glider pilots yep. form up yep. into large groups because they had they had their own mission once they were on the mm-hmm. ground of course and Having said that, do you think that all glider-born groups? So you know, we've got a, a seventh Kings on Scottish Borderers uh, impression within within the Normandy Forty Four, uh, which we should probably think about that name because it doesn't quite suit uh, anymore. But anyway, <laughs> having said that, uh, a long time ago that name was made, but still, having said that, do you think that all other glider-born uh, impressions should perhaps have some form of glider pilot regiment presence within their group? Absolutely, I think uh, authentically it works. Uh, I think as a point of interest, if you're um, displaying in front of the public, it's an excellent talking point. You mm-hmm. don't you don't have to have the glider there. If you have, that's great. But mm-hmm. you don't have to have the glider. You can you can you can speak to the public knowledgeably about the role that you're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A good giveaway for the public is, of course, the wings that are worn on the chest. You know, an eagle-eyed member of the public might say, how come you've got those on your chest, but he hasn't? Ah, well, he's air landing. I'm the actual pilot. You're a pilot? Mm. So you kind of cover that. So I think it's important, yeah, that that particularly air landing units Mm. or air landing groups would have a representative from the the GPR on board. 
Absolutely. So, and if, if I was to uh, to say, right, I'm going to convert my impression or provide an additional impression, because of course we never have enough impressions in our lockers and our wardrobes. So, if I was to say, Matt, I want to uh, I want to start a glider pilot impression. I have my glider-borne impression. Uh, I have a British parachutist impression. Uh, I have a couple of RAF impressions. Um, can I fuse those things together theoretically to make it work? Because I have pilots and I have glider-borne. Do I have enough there? Right? Do I need more specialist items? Uh, you don't need any more specialist items other than insignia particularly mm-hmm. um if you've got a suit of battle dress uh, and a denison mm-hmm. smock or a spare denison smock mm-hmm. for instance then all you're really going to need is some sergeant stripes or officers pips depending on which mm-hmm. way you want to go with it uh, and some wings however having mm-hmm. said that there are there's plenty of photographic evidence of pilots with no wings mm-hmm not sewn on they'll have been issued their yeah. wings but they're not sewn on the smock for, uh-huh. for a multitude of reasons you know mm-hmm. it might be a brand new smock and they haven't had time to get the wings on it might yeah. be a personal preference it might be a, a, a unit preference a flight preference where none mm-hmm. of these men wear, wear wings it, yeah I, I haven't got to the bottom of that yeah yet but you do, if you just had an unbadged smock then all you'd need is a is a, is a maroon beret and an army mm-hmm. air corps cap badge uh, on Chapter. that note i'd just like to add that there are Every now and again, people will use the wrong cat badge. The, the the cat badge that says the glider pilot regiment on it didn't come in until after the war. Mm-hmm. Right through the war from 42 right up until 53, they wore the Army Air Corps badge, which has the eagle on it, and it says AAC. So mm-hmm. you can't wear the glider pilot regiment cat badge because it's, it's inaccurate for what you're trying to portray mm-hmm. for the Second World War, just as a, a pointer. Yeah. Uh, everything else is pretty much the same. Your web equipment, mm-hmm. your battle dress. Now, if you wanted to badge up a battle dress blouse, then you'd have to go to town a little bit and you'd need glider pilot regiment, shoulder titles and, yep. and wings. And But the Pegasus and the rank insignia is all exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So yeah. <clears throat> if you were only going to wear your smock for the weekend, then you don't need a battle dress jacket to wear underneath it, a battle dress blouse, mm-hmm. so you can just wear your smock. Um, mm-hmm. So you can, I think everybody's got enough spare stuff kicking about or you know if they're fortunate they have mm-hmm. that they could put together uh, a glider pilot regiment impression relatively easily um mm-hmm. when i started doing it trying to get hold of decent insignia was an absolute nightmare mm-hmm. nowadays you know we've got gary bainbridge's old-time design company which makes some mm-hmm. incredibly good quality yeah, yeah. insignia particularly the glider pilot wings which are mm-hmm. I think the best I've seen on the market ever. Mm-hmm. I would agree. So, yeah. uh, and, and then there are there are other manufacturers as well that are equally equally good. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as good as Gary, but still they're good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and they're relatively inexpensive as well. So you can, mm-hmm. you, you know, I think Gary does packs uh, of the whole of the Glider Pilot Regiment mm-hmm. insignia, which you could you could purchase. Um, yeah. So you know, there's a belief that all glider pilots carried a Mark III Sten and a Bergen, which is a little bit of a myth. You know, it's it's, it's mm-hmm. based on a couple of photographs that I know of uh, mm-hmm. with with men carrying Bergens and and, and carrying Mark III Stens. Yeah, it, it's it's something I see over and over and over again. And the Bergen didn't come in until after D-Day, when the pilots flew on D-Day. They wore regular webbing equipment including the mm-hmm. assault respirator yeah um and all manner of weaponry thompson's stens number fours brens you mm-hmm. name it um so i think to 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 
I remember one guy telling me that they all had a handlebar moustache, they all smoked a pipe, they all carried a Bergen and the Mark III Sten, which is just a little bit... You can do that <laughs> if you want. generalisation. Yeah, you can yeah. do that if you want, but but it's far, I find it far more interesting to just look through mm. some books and really study Absolutely. some photographs. Yeah. Um, what, what what I try and do with chalk is, is get as many photographs out there as possible. I've got mm-hmm. a, a, a load of them which show you all kinds of different combinations of insignia uniform weaponry and equipment that the men were were using at the time so it's headgear maroon beret airborne steel helmet um the glider pilot helmet that everybody talks about trying to get a decent repro is quite difficult trying to get original you're looking at the price of a of decent second-hand car mm-hmm. um and they didn't always always wear them you know an awful mm-hmm. lot of these things were lost at arnhem particularly and then you see for operation varsity you see a lot of the pilots wearing a maroon beret with mm-hmm. uh, regular army issue earphones over mm-hmm. the top um so you, you you don't need to have the glider pilot regiment uh, the glider pilot helmet it's not a necessity it's a nice thing to have but Mm -hmm. you don't have to have it and i think sometimes when we're looking at doing impressions we kind of think oh well i can't do it because you need that and i can't afford it or i can't find Mm -hmm. it it's not always the case if you study some photographs you can usually find somewhere where Mm -hmm. you comfortably can put together something absolutely Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier, obviously, the uh, the skill set of these people in particular was uh, you know, a bit of a, a compromise of, uh, of, of flying ability and, and soldiering ability, too. So, you know, for anybody that has perhaps been over to Normandy and been to, uh, to Pegasus Bridge and, yeah. uh, and has seen the, the accuracy, uh, I mean, surely um, the, the landings at Pegasus Bridge are the most, or potentially one of the most impressive aerial feats of the entire war. So do you think that the pilots as such get as much credit as they should for their own? flying ability <clears throat> i think i think they do i think what i found is that pegasus bridge gets an awful lot of the headlines and quite mm-hmm. rightly so one thing i will say about uh, the the landing at pegasus bridge is that uh, walworth and ainsworth who landed the first glider uh, an, an amazing feat of flying they landed only a few hundred uh, not even a few hundred yards 60 mm-hmm. odd yards away from, yeah. from the actual bridge the other two gliders behind them didn't follow them in Mm-hmm. They navigated their own way there, Themselves, and they yeah. landed equally as close mm-hmm. to the bridge as, as the first glider did, which is very important. I think a mm-hmm. lot of people assume that they, they followed one another. They couldn't see one another, so that's not what yeah. happened. Um, uh-huh. and, and I think that Horsa Bridge um, all gets overlooked. So there was three assault yep. gliders for that bridge as well. One, unfortunately, was 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 towed in the completely the wrong direction and ended up mm-hmm. <laughs> ended up the other side of uh, of normandy but the, all yeah. the troops that were on it took the bridge that they landed next to it was the wrong bridge but they took mm-hmm. it and then they made their <laughs> way back to, to to the right area in the morning mm-hmm. by the morning um yeah so i think those six gliders did a remarkable job but then you've also got assault gliders that were intended to land at the merville gun battery on the battery it didn't go according mm-hmm. to plan but the you know mm-hmm. the pilots didn't know that when they set off then you've got the hundreds and hundreds of gliders that are coming in as part of operation tonga and later on as part of operation mallard later on in the evening of the 6th of june and these mm-hmm. men are having to land heavily loaded gliders at night in landing zones without 
hopefully without crashing into one another. So, it's to, so those feats of flying are exactly the same as, mm-hmm. as the men at, at Pegasus Bridge. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just exactly the same for Operation Market Garden and Operation Varsity and the Sicily uh, landings. Mm-hmm. You know, some of those aircraft were, dro- were were released too high and too far away from the coast, mm-hmm. uh, from yeah. the from land, and ended up landing in the water. So you've got mm-hmm. you've got hundreds of men drowning. You know, mm-hmm. so it's it's um, yeah. it, it's an incredibly difficult and challenging thing to, for for anybody to do. Never mind mm-hmm. somebody that's in an unpowered aircraft. Yeah, uh, usually at night, usually under mm-hmm. heavy fire. Mm-hmm. And in gathering this skill set to be able to perform such feats of, uh, of bravery and accuracy, how did the glider pilot regiments train? Uh, did they, you know, did they train in, uh, in in actual aircraft initially with engines, or was it always starting from from gliders? Uh, you know, at the very beginning of their flight training. Yeah, uh, initially when the regiment was put together, uh, there was a lot of to and fro between the RAF and the Army. The Army didn't rate uh, infantry corporals being trained to to fly uh, at all. Um, mm-hmm. The army couldn't train them to fly. It needed the RAF to be able to do that. Um, mm-hmm. There was an awful lot of uh, derogatory terms. They were known as <laughs> glider coxswains. They were known as glider drivers <laughs> at one point because yeah. the RAF yeah. saw them as 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 flying lorries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually, it all calmed down, uh, and the RAF came on board just to. Uh, cut that extremely short because it's a long, long story. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, they came on board, and what happened was that the men uh, were all volunteers. Um, uh, they'd have to go through uh, a, a, a rigorous interview to be able to even get through to go for training. Uh, once they were on on board for for the training program, they went to uh, an EFTS, which is an elementary flying training school, where they were taught to fly our Tiger Moths and mm-hmm. Miles Magisters. Uh, mm-hmm. which are powered aircraft and they were taught to fly that by the, those by the RAF uh, and then once they'd completed that training course they would then um, be qualified pilots and they'd mm-hmm. go into a GTS which is a glider training school and at glider training school they'd learn to fly the Hotspur the Hotspur was a small non-combat uh, aircraft glider mm-hmm. uh, which was it could carry eight men uh, and they had two pilots who sat in tandem, one behind the other, uh, and that would they would learn then how to fly an unpowered aircraft, uh, yeah. a, a glider. Once they'd qualified on that course, so that we've already got a, a rigorous interview, we've got to learn how to fly powered aircraft and navigate, uh, and then we have to learn how to fly gliders. So at any point, these men can be binned off this course and returned mm-hmm. to unit. They can be RTU'd with lack of moral fiber or whatever written across their notes. You know, it's 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 a, it's extreme. Extremely difficult to get mm-hmm. to heavy glider conversion, which is HGCU, which is heavy glider conversion units, where they then yep. learn to fly the Horsa uh, and perhaps even the the giant Hamilcar, which you know uh, we've all heard of the Hamilcar. It can carry a yeah. small tank, uh-huh. it can carry a seventeen pounder and a towing vehicle. It's a huge flying garage. Once they'd done all that, then. At the, at the same time, they're also at the Glider Pilot Regiment Depot, which is an extremely disciplined army depot mm-hmm. um, where their RSMs are from the guards uh, divisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can be binned off that course for having untidy shoelaces. They can be binned off that course for having a dirty cat badge. It's absolutely horrendous. So once mm-hmm. they've got through all of that, then they're a fully qualified glider pilot and they would then join one of the two wings either the first wing or second wing um uh and 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 be given uh, a squadron 
and then a flight. And then a, a number of these men wouldn't see any operational duties whatsoever. They might miss out on Normandy. For some reason, they might miss out on Market Garden. And then, you know, they might be posted somewhere else and, and miss out on Operation Varsity. Mm-hmm. So it's only it's only a very few of them, a couple of thousand, that actually see any operational service. Mm-hmm. And even fewer number saw all of the operations. So mm-hmm. you, you've only got a, a handful of men that would see yeah. Sicily, France, Holland, and Germany. And how many of these um, pilots would have saw action in, in multiple locations? Um, very few. Mm-hmm. Very, very few. Uh, uh, towards the end of the war, particularly after Operation Varsity, a lot of them were then posted to India, where they trained right. for the invasion of Japan, which, of course, mm-hmm. never occurred. Never actually, yeah, um, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> indeed. And speaking of uh, in- invasions to a degree, uh, it's there were many, many people, English, uh, British, people from all over the world attending uh, Arnhem uh, and Oosterbeek in September this year, finally, after a couple of years uh, away from uh, after COVID. So I'm finally going to be able to, uh, to to put my feet on that uh, hallowed ground for the first time, which I'm very, very much looking forward to yeah. this September. Um, so... You know, we're very much looking forward to, to visiting Wolf Hayes and Oosterbeek and some of those surrounding areas that the Seventh Kingston uh, Scottish border has defended and, and fought around. Um, there's a particular memor- memorial being unveiled there this year, which uh, we should definitely visit. And you had uh, some kind of involvement in that, Matt. Is that right? Yeah, uh, a good friend of mine, Raymond De Heer, uh organised the uh, construction of a glider pilot regiment memorial. Um, mm. There hasn't been a, 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 an individual memorial to the regiment uh, yet, so he's he's organised that, and he approached me and asked me to design that. So I was very fortunate to be. I, I'm a graphic designer by trade, yes. So yeah. I was very fortunate to be involved in that. Unfortunately, I think I'm going to miss it. I'm not going to be there at the time, oh, no. which is just one of those things um, due to work, ironically. But yeah, um, yeah it should be unveiled this year. It's supposed to be unveiled last year for the 75th, but mm-hmm. w- with COVID and everything, some of the materials mm-hmm. hadn't arrived, etc. Yeah. So that's going to be happening this year. Um, obviously, I think. Uh, on the Glider Pilot Regiment calendar, Operation Market Garden, as well as D-Day, is one of their most famous yes. um, battles. They lost an awful lot of men at Arnhem, uh, and there's some interesting stuff to see. You say you've never you've never been yet. Yeah, this is your first never time. Never been, so that, that was going to be one of my quick questions, can, is, you know, what, what would you rattle off as some of the, the must-sees there? Uh, I think definitely the Hartenstein. <clears throat> I'd definitely mm-hmm. go to the Hartenstein Museum. Um, it's a little bit of a bone of contention with certain people. Back in the old days, it was a regular old dusty museum full of all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff. Uh, yeah. And now it's a little bit more of a visitor center. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still find it an extremely important place to go. The building itself yeah. is, is extremely important. The Glider Pilot Regiment ended up dug in around the Hartenstein, as well as other parts of the perimeter around Oosterby, mm-hmm. but particularly around the Hartenstein. Uh, they guarded some of the German POWs that were kept in the tennis courts, mm-hmm. um, and they provided security uh, for Divisional HQ, which was at the actual um, hotel itself. So it's an, it plays an important part for the Glider Pilot Regiment. Um, mm-hmm. But I get down to the church, get down to the church and have a look around there. That's that's absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating. But you'll find uh, as you as you as you go around that really it's the whole place <laughs> that, yeah because it happened everywhere every every yeah. place you stand walk yeah I, I remember the i think it was the second time i went we um we were taken on a tour by neil cherry the author 
He, yep, yep. He, he got a lot of us together and he took us on a tour through Hackett's Hollow and into Oosterbeek. And it was really, it was fascinating to have this, 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 this uh, expert talking to us about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It was brilliant. And we ended up outside this house in Oosterbeek. It was quite early in the morning, Sunday morning. It was about sort of nine o'clock. And we're all stood outside this house, all in Denison's and stuff, listening to this guy stood in the middle of the road telling us all this story. And the curtains were twitching in this one house, and this lady came out in a dressing gown. And this Dutch lady came out with her husband, and she said, can I ask what you're doing? So he, I'm, 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 we're doing this and this. And she said, oh, we've, we've only just bought this house, and we, we don't. We didn't know anything about <laughs> what. Didn't wow. know anything about what's occurred. And he uh-huh. said, he said, madam. Your house was a was a regimental aid post. Said there were wounded soldiers being brought to your house during the battle, and they, their eyes were just like. Uh-huh. And, and I saw that from their point of view, and I thought that's incredible because mm-hmm. now wow. it's it's a, it's it's always been a very affluent sort of town. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was in the nineteen thirties and forties, absolutely. And, and yeah. now it's a, it's a it's a really lovely, peaceful, leafy town. And, mm-hmm. and when you look at the photographs, it's difficult sometimes to to comprehend what it must have been like but when you're there when you're outside the hartenstein looking at the photos it suddenly comes down to 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 earth Mm -hmm. for you and you you really start to see start to see it and there's lots of signs of of everything you get into Mm -hmm. arnhem itself and there's there's still pock marks on the buildings and and all sorts of bits and bobs you'll have an absolute whale of a time i can guarantee yeah i would recommend anybody goes i think the best way and it's not difficult to get to Holland. It's not difficult to get to France. You know, we can do that. I think with with people mm-hmm. who who are interested in the Vietnam War or North Africa, or mm-hmm. it's really difficult. You can't, you can't just yeah. hop on a ferry and go to Vietnam. But you can certainly mm-hmm. go over to Normandy, and it's it's not too difficult to get to Arnhem either. And Completely, once you do, yeah. it really rewards you. It does. And I, I would argue to a degree that um, Arnhem. I mean, as much as I've been to Normandy four or five times, Arnhem is, is I think to a degree much easier to get to i mean there's there's three or four ferry ports from yeah. northern england i mean you can go from hull you can go from harwich you can go from newcastle um once you land at amsterdam it's a you know a 45 minute drive roughly yeah. from from there so you know to a degree if you land at cherbourg and you say in the british sector or the central sector it's an hour's drive in normandy so to a degree i think it's it's more accessible it's cheaper and i think one of the best things for me is you know we're we're going off slightly off on a tangent we're getting the ferry from newcastle with a jeep on you know on the uh from there and it's a it's a it's a holiday for us you know we're overnight on the ferry there'll be a few of us there just with like you mentioned earlier polo shirts and t-shirts that sort of stuff and yeah, yeah. stuff you'll sure meet other people on the ferry who are going over there and, and you've got a night on the ferry either side overnight having a few beers you know reading books looking forward to it and you you, you know you don't always get that with an overnight ferry to normandy oh yeah build I, that excitement up look through the maps the books you yeah know? i made a, an, a very very similar trip when i was with vera we, we went over mm. in 2009 i think and we went mm. over uh on the ferry from newcastle and mm. uh we took a load of jeeps with us and a van full of yep. kit and and it was just absolutely fantastic we we, we stayed on a camp with lots of other reenactors and and, mm-hmm. and, and and historians sitting around the fire at night around the tables and stuff was just great you were meeting all these people Magical. from from all over europe who'd, who'd mm-hmm. all descended on this on, on this yeah. one, one place so it, it was mm. it was superb yeah Magical. Really looking forward to it. And, and where can we find you this year on the uh, the Living History Circuit? Right. It's going to be a difficult one this year because I still haven't managed to nail anything down for doing any yeah. events. Uh-huh. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm really wanting this year to, to, 
to push chalk forwards more than I have done before. Mm-hmm. It's yep. it, it's ticked over quite nicely. We've 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 made a good impression, if you pardon the pun. Um, we've been accepted by all manner of people. A lot of people know who we are, and that's brilliant. But mm-hmm. if we're not careful, because we haven't done any face to face stuff for since pre COVID, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to start losing that position that we've we've made for ourselves. So yep. this year, uh, I want to start looking at a static website. Facebook's fantastic; mm-hmm. it's been really really good for us. But uh, a lot of the posts get lost in the in the midst of time, mm-hmm. and you Absolutely. can't expect yeah. people to just scroll on indefinitely. So a mm-hmm. static website would be really good. Uh, it'd be a great place for me to share some of the stuff that I've I've collected over the years um i'd really like to look actually at doing the odd podcast where we we talk Mm -hmm. about it and everything um and i'd like to look at doing some booklets um amazing i've got an idea for doing you know some collectible booklets on the glider pilot regiment Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's only a a fledgling idea at this moment but Mm -hmm. but 2022 i really want to start putting some stuff together that'll move us uh move us forward a little bit Mm -hmm. as we said earlier because of our not advancing years, but because we're not doing so much living history and reenactment, then Absolutely, yeah. I don't yeah. I don't want every all the time I've invested, all the money that I've invested, um, uh, I don't want it to become stagnant, if you like. Exactly, and it would be very yeah. easy yeah. to, to do that. Uh, I'm still extremely passionate about it. I still really, really enjoy it. I love collecting. I love researching mm-hmm. it. Um, and it would be a shame for, for it to just mm-hmm. sort of, absolutely sit there and do nothing so that's that's what we're hoping to do this year if we do get a couple of events they'll be they'll be flagged up on the on the on the facebook page and uh, anybody that comes along it'd be great to see them anybody that wants to contact me just just send me a pm i'm happy to bore them to death <laughs> i'm sure there'll be plenty of uh plenty of takers on that and what we'll do is we'll put your uh your social media hashtags Lovely. for the uh for the group and yourself in the uh the show notes below as well but no i think it's great that you've got that um the outlet the output for that passion because so many of us have it and so many of us have uh lovely rooms like you and i have got where we yeah. can proudly display uh the fruits of our labor over over many years there and i think it's always good it's a shame for these things to hide away in in, in just our own rooms and where, where we can share our information images of that equipment um put it on display educate people i think uh, any kind of output for this kind of items um in the history with them is uh, is all positive in my eyes yeah absolutely i agree Brilliant. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, and uh, you know you've made me really, really excited about the the Glider Pilot Regiment Excellent. and perhaps you know introducing that into our impression even more so for going into Arnhem. So hopefully we'll catch up soon. Uh, but thank you so much for your time, and we'll see you all later, later on, guys. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Reenactors Ramble once again, and don't forget to like and follow our Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube channels. And finally, a big, big shout out to our very first patrons of the podcast, 1940s Lance and the Vintage Bondi, for their incredibly valuable contributions and support towards the running of the Reenactors Ramble podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so from as little as £1 per month, which goes towards our digital overheads and exciting developments for the future at patreon.com slash Thanks for listening.